Everyone, we continue our read-through of the New Testament, and today we are in Revelation 5, one of the most important chapters in Revelation, and probably one of the central uh, chapters that has created a number of Christian songs and hymns throughout the ages. Here in this heavenly vision that has been given to John, a second dramatic act now comes into focus, beginning in the opening of chapter 5. From creation and and the end of chapter 4, the action now shifts to focus on both redemption and recreation. God's purposes of redemption and rule can be accomplished only through one who is uniquely worthy. A lamb. A lamb, Jesus Christ. He is simultaneously the fierce lion of the tribe of Judah, warring against his enemies, but also the gentle lamb that has been slain who purchased his people with the blood of his atoning sacrifice. What chapters 4 and 5 serve to set out is that only God in his Trinitarian fullness can accomplish these magnificent purposes of cosmic redemption, restoration, and retribution. Let's read chapter 5 and make some notes after the fact. We read, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne... A scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to begin to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out of all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here we see God the Creator sitting on the throne, and we're told that He has a scroll in His right hand, like an architect with a rolled-up design for a building, or a general with a rolled-up plan of a campaign. The scroll is sealed with seven seals, and we we rightly guess, however, that it contains God's secret plan to undo and overthrow the world-destroying projects that have already gained so much ground, and to plant and nurture instead the world-rescuing project which will get creation itself back on track in the right direction. It is God's plan of cosmic restoration, cosmic redemption, and cosmic retribution. But here's the problem. 
Who's going to do it? Who's going to open the scroll? Who is going to put it to action? Is there anybody out there who deserves to open such a scroll? Is there anybody who has not themselves contributed in some way to the problems of creation itself? To the age-old spoiling and trashing of God's beautiful world? And, And John answer shows that he, like the other New Testament writers, had a very realistic view of the deep-rooted problem of sin. It seems all other creations, as, uh, all other creatures as well, recognize that there is no way that they themselves can contribute. There had been angelic beings who had failed. The the earth and and all of creation had been plagued by the fall, and man was sinful through their father Adam, sinful to the core. But that constitutes a major problem. God committed himself back in Genesis 1 and 2 to work within his creation through obedient humankind. That's how the world was designed to work. For God then to say, well, humans have failed, so I'll have to do it some other way, would be to unmake the very structure of his good creation, to turn it into a different sort of world entirely. Someone must be found. From within the traditions of Israel, one answer would have been Israel itself is called to be God's true humanity, to put God's rescue plan into operation. True. But though John doesn't say so explicitly, here we meet the second level of problem. Israel, too, has failed. They have let God down. And here again, God appears to be faced with a dilemma. If he says, well, Israel hasn't done what I hoped, so I'll have to cut out that bit of my plan, it would look as though he has blundered has been flailing around with different ideas, none of which have worked. God has made the world in such a way that his plans for the world must be executed by man. Since humanity and since human sin now means that those plans require a rescue operation, God has called one human family to be the means through which this rescue will be put into effect. God has, in other words, determined to run the world through man and to rescue the world through Israel. But both have let him down. So what will God do? Does anyone deserve to open the scroll? Is anyone worthy? We might well join John in a flood of tears at this point. Can nothing be done? But already the plan to wipe away all tears from all eyes has begun. Don't cry, says one of the elders. Look, he says, here is the one who can do it. And before we even look, we know who this is. It is the truly human one. It is the true Israelite. It is the Messiah. But in John's vision, nothing is ever said straightforwardly. Because everything must be seen in its multidimensional glory. John is invited to look at the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. The echoes that rumble like thunder around the cave walls of our scriptural memories conjure up prophecies and visions. The Messiah will come from David's tribe, the tribe of Judah. Judah had been described back in Genesis 49 as a lion's club, and this was picked up in a later visionary writing in which the Messiah appears as a lion to attack the eagle of the Roman Empire. You see this in some of the apocryphal writings. No first century Jew would miss the reference or fail to understand the root of David, a phrase which, as in Revelation 22, echoes the great messianic prophecy of Isaiah 11. And as we would expect the true Messiah, we are told not just that he deserves to open the scroll, but that he has won the victory. The Messiah, it was thought, would fight and win the decisive battle against the last great enemy of God's people and to liberate them once and for all. 
Well, says the elder to John, he has done it. Here he is. And now we come to one of the most decisive moments in all scripture when John, what John has heard is the announcement of the lion, but what he sees is a lamb. He is told that what he has heard in his head while gazing at what he now sees, and he is told what he is seeing in his head as he reflects on what he has heard. The two seem so radically opposed. The lion, the symbol of power and of supreme royalty. The lamb symbolizing vulnerability, gentleness, and through its sacrifice, the ultimate weakness of death. But the two are now fused together completely and forever. From this moment on, John and and we as his careful readers are to understand that the victory won by the lion is accomplished through the sacrifice of the lamb and in no other way. But we are also to understand that what has been accomplished by the Lamb's sacrifice is not merely the wiping away of sin for a few people here and there. The victory won by the Lamb is God's lion-like victory through His faithful Israel in person, through His obedient humanity in person, over all the forces of corruption and death, over everything that would destroy and obliterate God's good, powerful, and lovely creation. There have been down the years plenty of lion-like Christians Yes, they think Jesus died for us, but now God's will is to be done in the lion-like fashion through brute force and violence to make the world come into line, to enforce God's will. No, replies John. Think of the lion, yes, but gaze at the lamb. And there have been plenty of lamb Christians. Yes, they think Jesus may have been the lion of Judah, but that's a political idea which we should reject because salvation consists in having our sins wiped away so that we can get out of this compromised world and just go off to heaven. No, replies John. Gaze at the lamb, but remember that it is the lion's victory that he has won. And remember as we listen and look that the lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. He is, that is to say, all-powerful and all-seeing. And he has the right to take the scroll and open it. And everything else follows from the reality that he is worthy to open the scroll. And he has been victorious in being established as the one who will bring about and who has already inaugurated God's plan of cosmic redemption. And thus, the heavens sing over him. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is he who is able to open the seals. He was slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people for God, for every tribe and tongue and and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And they shall reign on earth. What a beautiful song. A song that we should join in and sing with them. It's there in the opening of the music that we describe the fullness and beauty of this Lamb and what He has done for us. The heavenly scene is umbilically related to the earthly. The ordinary, faithful, humble prayers of Christians here on earth appear in heaven as glorious, sweet-smelling incense. And I suspect the same is true of the music with the heavenly harps corresponding to the songs, however feeble and out of tune, which we sing to God's praise here and now. 
And the first of these three songs in this passage is found that the Lamb is being praised not just for rescuing us, but for turning us from hopeless rebels into useful servants, from sinful slaves into a kingdom of priests, from rubbish into royalty. This is our play. The Lamb has set us free to stop being spectators and to start being actors. And we hear the crescendo of the songs, not merely with excitement and eager fascination, but with a sense of vocation. We praise the Lamb for what He's done. He is indeed worthy to take and open the the scroll and its seals. He is worthy to be the agent to carry it forward. He is worthy because of the way He has dealt with it by His own blood, through His perfect sacrifice. The first song also echoes the great passage in Daniel 7 where after the raging of the monsters and the vindication of one like a son of man, God establishes His rule over the whole earth in and through the rescue of his holy ones. The rescue effected in Daniel, as it were, is the great exodus, the final and ultimate exodus, with the monsters who have oppressed God's people taking the place of Pharaoh in Egypt. And John is picking up the same storyline, only now putting together the slaughtered Passover lamb and the vindicated son of man. This breathtaking move is made possible, indeed obvious, by the rushing together of both vocations in Jesus himself. The first song praises the Lamb for rescuing the people by His death so that they could then take forward God's royal and redemptive purposes. The second song, which thousands upon thousands of angels then join in, turn from what the Lamb has achieved to what He has deserved, namely all the honor and glory of which creation is capable. The wealth and strength of the nations belong to Him. Everything that ennobles and enriches human life, everything that enables people to live wisely, to enjoy and celebrate the goodness of God's world, all this is to be laid at His feet. Sadly, there are many Christians who think of Jesus purely in terms of their own comfort and hope and who fail completely to see the sheer scope of His majesty, the sweep of His glory, Many rest content to have Jesus around the place for particular spiritual purposes, but to continue to assign riches, power, glory, and the rest to earthly forces and rulers. Perhaps one of the reasons why Revelation is marginalized in some churches is precisely because it so strongly challenges that attitude. And on to the third song, where every creature and every part of God's creation now joins in. Much as in Paul's vision in Philippians 2, this time the praise of the Lamb has been joined together with the praise of God the Creator. In thunderous worship, the whole creation praises the one on the throne and the Lamb. And if we are not to not either overwhelmed with the vision or exhausted with trying to understand it, we may glimpse here the most profound truth of all, which like everything else in chapters 4 and 5, continues to inform the whole of the rest of the book. The Lamb shares the praise which belongs to the one and only God. This is John's way of glimpsing and communicating the mind-challenging but central truth at the heart of the Christian faith. Jesus, the Lion Lamb, Israel's Messiah, the true man, this Jesus shares the worship which belongs and uniquely and only belongs to the Creator God. Notice what that means. The affirmation of the full, unequivocal divinity of the lion lamb comes and only comes in the context of the victory of God through Christ over all the powers of evil. 
It isn't j- enough just to agree with the idea in the abstract that Jesus is in some sense or another God. People often say to me, is Jesus God? As though we knew who God was ahead of the time and who could simply just fit Jesus into that picture. God, as we've already seen in Revelation, is the creator who is intimately involved within his world and worshipped by that world. God has plans and purposes to deliver his world from all that has spoiled it. In other words, to reestablish his sovereign rule, his kingdom on earth as is in heaven. It is at the heart of those plans and only there that we find the lion lamb sharing the throne of the one God. The church is all too often split off of a bare affirmation of Jesus' divinity from an acceptance of God's kingdom agenda. To do so is to miss the point and to use a version of one part of the truth as a screen to stop oneself from having to face the full impact of the rest of the truth. We discover and celebrate the divinity of the lion and the lamb, the Messiah, only when we find ourselves caught up to share his work as the royal priesthood, summing up creation's praises before him, but also bringing his rescuing rule to bear upon the world. God bless.